Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Our guests today are Drs. Kaufman-Taylor, Dr. Schuler, and Dr. Staples. And these are three physicians uh, from University School of Medicine and Prisma Health Pediatrics who uh, are going to talk about a pediatric subspecialty program that they have been doing for many years now. So welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. So real quickly, I'd love for each one of you to kind of introduce yourself and talk about how you came to Columbia and doing this work. I'm Heather Staples. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist um, here in Columbia. Um, I came to the area initially to do my pediatric training. So I was a resident at Prisma Health Children's Hospital, um, went away to train in pulmonology, and came back about two and a half years ago to join the faculty, um, and I've been enjoying it ever since. Great. I'm Ozzy Schuler. I'm, I'm the chief of pediatric cardiology. Um, I've been here in Columbia now for almost 26 years. I um, went to undergraduate at USC, did all my medical training down in Charleston, and then came back to Columbia to do uh, to work. So having grown up in Orangeburg and gone to undergrad in Columbia and medical training in Charleston, I kind of know the state, and I've seen about right. everything rural about this state uh, right. in my lifetime. Um, and that's one of the big reasons that I first started doing my rural outreach clinics was because of my uh, connections to the rural part of the state. Great. I'm Kaufman Taylor. I'm chair of pediatrics. I've been here for over 40 years, um, resident medical student, and um, been uh, the residency director, pediatric hospitalist, and then chair, now also senior medical director of our children's hospital. Yeah, that's that's quite a bit. Long time. Yeah. That's what happens when you stick around somewhere for a while, right? Or they don't fire you. (laughs) Right. So, Dr. Taylor, tell us a little bit about how these outreach clinics started. What was the impetus behind that, and what all do you guys do exactly? Yeah, and so, as Dr. Schuler alluded to, it was part of what he and his division had established with, they were doing outreach clinics specifically in cardiology. And so, it fit, it fit with our mission of trying to provide the best care locally, our mission to try to serve all the people of South Carolina and our recognition of the lack of subspecialists in and around the areas we served. Mm-hmm. So we basically probably modeled ourselves after what um, Dr. Schuler was doing, and then when iCare came along and offered support, that was a genesis to allow us to expand significantly. Probably at that time, I'm not sure we were doing maybe more than two other subspecialties at most. Dr. Schuler could comment more. Um, because in his role as vice chair, he kind of oversees our rural health program and helps me coordinate that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we started, and it was just trying to serve. We realized how difficult it was for families to travel. I mean, you know, 45 minutes, they had to take the whole day off to right. travel, where if we could be right there, right. then that allowed them to get the care that day. And, and I'm sure we'll talk more about how the success of the program Ozzy, you want to add anything more about how we got started and, in the program? And to clarify, you're, we're talking about taking physicians and clinical teams to a local rural community to provide care in location. Yeah, we, we take everything. We take our staff. Right. We have our equipment. If it's pulmonary function tests that Dr. Staples and her team use, in the case of Dr. Schuler, they got EKG and echo machines. We've got the nursing and and we built off of that, but we we just they all get in the van or get in a couple of cars and they drive to the locations, right. and we use a myriad of locations that we can talk more about and yeah. have taken advantage of what was offered. Sometimes we pay rent, sometimes we do it in a private office, sometimes we have established with the program support that we've gotten. Um, here at the university, being able to actually rent a building full time in one of the areas we're there all the time with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Schuler, tell us about yeah, how the, how you kicked all this off. Apparently, it, it, the the I can tell you the day we did our first outreach clinic. It was um, April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five. Okay. And the only reason I know that is because my my longtime nurse from Helen Palmer reminded me of this that it's the day that the Oklahoma City bombing mm-hmm. occurred, 
and it was on the TV in the lobby of Dr. Mac DeBose's office in Sumter. He's a, he was a family practitioner in, in Sumter, and he let us um, use a few rooms in his office to do our first clinic. We saw mm-hmm. five patients, and right in the middle of clinic, um, the TV came on with the announcement of the Oklahoma City Federal Building bombing. So that day will live in infamy in, in this country, and, and it's a way I remember when we did our first clinic. Mm-hmm. And that's how it really all got started. Um, and uh, we did Sumter. Um, we then added on Lancaster and Orangeburg and uh, eventually started going to Aiken as well. Um, as far as where we picked the clinics, it was kind of based on our rural background. Dr. Luther Williams was my partner at the time. He and I both joined the university at about the same time. He grew up in Lancaster. I grew up in Orangeburg. So we ended up with a clinic in both places because right. we knew people. Right. It's all about who you know in South Carolina. Right. And uh, Sumter was a very um, – easy location to pick because of it's a major referral area for our um for our practice right so it was a combination of people that you knew but also you knew that a lot of folks from there came to your clinic exactly that makes sense kevin i think you know before we got the support from the south carolina center for rural and primary health care dr Schuler alludes to it was about the relationships but the private physicians wanted us there because we could see their patients for that and so it did get more sophisticated as you've alluded in the conversation that we started looking before we start satellite clinics now our rural health clinics or our outreach clinics we have three different names (laughs) but before we do that we look and see how many patients we have in that subspecialty right is that a reasonable thing to do and then we increase our volumes from once a month, uh, you know, or from every other month, or once a month, or twice a month, based on those volumes. So we, 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 we are very cognizant to look at how many patients in that given subspecialty. And that's why right now we're kind of a, not mismatched, but we don't necessarily send every specialty mm-hmm. to every rural health location that we have or, or every outreach area that we have is it's based on the numbers of those patients right it's all about supply and demand i guess yes business yes. terms right which makes sense but then you know you're providing services in that location and now patients can you know the orangeburg clinic for example that's not just patients in orangeburg right that's people True. from further out from yeah. orangeburg coming in right, right? Yeah, it's funny when you talk about what's rural. And right. It's all relative, I guess. If you yes, ask someone from New York City what's rural, uh, they'd probably tell us the whole state of South Carolina. But, <laughs> right. Um, if you look at Orangeburg and Sumter, you say, well, those aren't really a rural locations, but they they service very rural counties that sit right next to them. Orangeburg's Correct. right next to Calhoun and Bamberg and Barnwell counties, and Sumter right next to Lee and Clarendon County, so there's definitely those are definitely rural parts of our mm-hmm, state. Mm-hmm. Um, so and when, and when those folks seek care, they go to town and they go to Sumter. Exactly, not Columbia. They don't want to the drive. Big... They don't want to drive on the interstate and come to Columbia. Right, exactly. And I don't blame them for that necessarily. So, Doctor Staples, tell us a little bit about you know your work. You're the provider. You're not involved in setting them up necessarily. You're actually delivering the care to these patients. Tell us what that looks like for you as a provider and you said this is a reason one reason why you wanted to come back and work here right yes so one of the things that really drew me back to the position here in columbia was the ability to serve um, patients who had needs that they had difficulty getting into uh, the you know the mainstream part of the state Um, so when i first started i was going to florence once a month and to the lancaster area once a month and Again, like we were just talking about, Florence may not sound like a rural area, but I have a lot of patients in Dillon. Right. And Dillon is much farther away from Columbia than Florence is, but right. patients can get there easier than they can get to Columbia. Right. Um, so initially we looked at, um, and for about a year, we actually were going to Fort Mill um, to see patients on the north side of the state in the York County area. Um, And then, like Dr. Taylor was saying, we really keep an eye on the number of patients and how we're serving that area and found that I was getting more and more referrals from the Florence area Mm. and my clinics were more and more booked. So Mm. we ended up pulling in the Fort Mill area to the Lancaster Clinic and opened a second uh, day every month in Florence. And those days are booked uh, pretty several months in advance. Um, Oftentimes we end up overbooking just Mm -hmm. because it's so difficult for the families to make the trip back to Columbia. Um, But a day for us includes the team meeting pretty early in the morning um, and caravanning out to our location. Mm -hmm. Um, For our team, we have myself, we have a respiratory therapist, a nurse, and then um, 
an office staff who works with us on checking in patients and uh, scheduling patients. Um, and it goes so smoothly. I mean, we have, it's a well, well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nice because there are a lot of patients that need to be seen regularly for follow-up. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to just um, see a whole, a whole list of patients in one day. Um, and it makes it so much easier for them. And I know typically when I see them for their first visit, I'll ask them, did you know I see patients in Florence? And most of the time, if they don't know, their face lights up. And they're like, right. oh, I didn't know. And I was like, yeah, I can see you there for your follow-up appointments. Right. Um, and you can tell that that really means a lot to the yeah, families. That's a, that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So how many patients would you see in a typical day? Um, I usually have 17 slots between okay. 8.30 and noon. Um, so they're 15-minute slots, so we see follow-up patients there. I don't see mm-hmm. new patients um, at this time in the outreach clinic. Um, but we will typically book three in our last slot so we can get in as many as we can before right. we go back to Columbia. Right. Um, so, yeah, usually we have around 15 that end up showing up. Okay. That's, mm-hmm. that's still a pretty good. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a full morning. It is. It's a full day that we do in a morning. <laughs> right. That's a good way to put it. So, you know, tell me a little bit about who these patients are. Like, why are they seeking the care and what is it about the local care that they value? So it's the same disease processes that we see with the patients who are in Columbia. Um, we have patients with asthma, cystic fibrosis, former preemie babies on oxygen who may require trach or vent support. Um, the thing that's different is that these families have to take off a significant amount of work time to travel. Mm-hmm. The cost of gas and then meals if they're going to be gone for several hours. Right. Um, and a lot of our families are, the parents are hourly wage earners. And so mm-hmm. to lose an entire day's worth of work is detrimental significantly to their families. Right. And so for them, being able to be seen locally is is huge and i have found that some of my complex patients who were chronic no-show patients actually are coming when they don't have to have the burden of travel Um, because that is i think sometimes we underestimate the the cost burden to these families both the time and the money cost yeah yeah that's a that's a big deal right there and you said you see mostly follow-up patients at Mm -hmm. these clinics is there a reason for that or is it just because of the complexity issues or Yes. So a new patient is has potential unknowns. So you're not sure what the complexity is. There have been many times that I've admitted a new patient directly to the mm-hmm. hospital because we didn't realize um, with them coming in what their needs were going to be. Um, sometimes those are longer visits than you anticipate. And sometimes we need our more sophisticated pulmonary function testing equipment that we aren't able to take with us to the outreach clinic. Right. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done that, then you know what to expect and you Correct. can book them there. That makes sense. Uh, Dr. Schuler, back to you. I'm wondering about, you know, some of the cardiovascular conditions you're seeing. You know, we're, again, resetting this. We're talking about pediatric patients with pulmonology problems and cardiology problems. That's not the norm that you think about when you think about cardiology. Yeah. the when you think about cardiology, you think about old people who have right. heart problems. But um, it is the most common congenital anomaly that we see is cardiac anomalies. And the the clinics that we do have a fair amount of kids who have potentially fairly complex heart defects. That mm-hmm. And those are the ones I think in some ways it, it is the most meaningful to them because some of these kids between stages, between their surgical stages, they need to be seen every three months for the first you know three years of life. That's a lot of travel for someone who's coming back that frequently. So those right. those patients really appreciate the clinic. Mm-hmm. We also have some babies who have rapid heart rates that we have to see once a month to adjust their medications. And if you're talking traveling to Columbia from Lancaster once a month, that's a big hardship. Mm-hmm. So those are the ones that makes a huge difference. And as Heather was referring to, the 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 ones I think it makes a, the biggest difference to is the, are the people with limited resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear stories about, I can borrow my brother's car, but I can only go 10 miles in it, or he won't let me use that much gasoline to come to Columbia. And and those are the ones that, that if, they, if we weren't close, they just wouldn't be coming. Right. And we know that from our numbers. And looking at um, show rates, we just have so much better show rates, like Heather was talking about in these outreach clinics, than we do when these same patients come to Columbia. Yeah. And so, if they end up not seeing care with you, you know what? 
happens to them? They end up in the ER because their medications are sub-therapeutic. Um, mm-hmm. They end up getting admitted to the hospital because their asthma is now out of control for Heather's patients. So right. it makes a huge difference, and it probably saves the state and um, the families a lot of money in the long run to right. get this regular care. Right. And just the peace of mind, I guess, to be under therapeutic yeah. control is a huge, huge thing. Yep. So – Dr. Taylor, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, this has expanded over the years. We started off with a handful from Dr. Schuler and now now where are we? How many clinics are we working on? How many providers? How many patients? So we are up to about nine subspecialties that we provide, um, and it varies. We've gotten up to seven or eight locations, and depending on the number of patients or what's going on we may drop a like a fort mill or add a lancaster and and so we're very uh, aware of that so we're up to about uh again nine subspecialties and everybody's different i mean pulmonology probably provides the most they they have five sites in general um cardiology and um others are doing four so aren't you ozzy at different locations mm-hmm. um and and, and so we just keep adding, and like we've got, um, we we've added our first um, pediatric physiatrist, but we've had to wait till the second one come, and we're now going to start doing those. So that will be an additional subspecialty coming up soon. Mm-hmm. That will be more locations possibly that we will choose to do, or in some of the similar areas. Because if you look at us, we're kind of a spoken wheel, and as you've said, and Ozzy and and, and Dr. Staples. Those spoken wheels and extend out from Sumter or Lancaster mm-hmm. to true rural areas, and so our whole goal is to do it in those locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, I know we're only talking about the Midlands here, but the Upstate, because of, of of the South Carolina Office of you know Rural and Primary Health Care and the money, the Upstate started this program now, right, right. and and so they have satellites in places like Anderson and think Oconee and others. Mm-hmm. And and one unique thing that I think we do with our program that helps another health system uniquely is what we're doing in Florence with our subspecialty. In fact, we've agreed to provide more subspecialty clinics there. Right. And as Dr. Staples alluded to, they're going to see that child in their hospital, whether it's in their PICU or their hospital service. That child would maybe have to come all the way to us. And so we're adding telemedicine so that maybe we can see that clinic child. If if we're having Hemont Clinic, for example, maybe Heather could do, uh, Dr. Staples could do a follow-up clinic that day right. for their asthma and not drive. She'll have right. to determine based on the consultation. Right. But we're using telemedicine piggybacking and our next step, and, and Dr. Schuler maybe can talk more about it, but our next step is we're trying to hire enough nurses and staff so that if pulmonology is there, if the need arose, we could also schedule one other or two other subspecialty patients to be followed up that day outside of the scheduled subspecialty, again, to provide better access, mm-hmm. more convenience so the family doesn't mm-hmm. have to wait for three weeks for cardiology to come back to or come back, right. three weeks for GI to come back. Right. And um, so we've also been very unique, and you mentioned COVID, and we'll get there, but we were already exploring using telemedicine um, because of our child abuse program and mm-hmm. because of the work that we've done with the South Carolina Telehealth Alliance and putting that in there. So this was a natural evolution, I would say, wouldn't you, Ozzy and Heather, where we put telemedicine or building our telemedicine capabilities in all these areas. So, for example, Dr. Shula has a partner, and maybe they used to take two providers, or he has several partners, but maybe two <laughs> providers would go. Now one can go, one can stay in the office, but yet they could still see them via telemedicine and right. serve instead of 10 patients that day, 20. Right. So that is really helping us um, provide care. In South Carolina, <clears throat> you know, everybody talks about nursing shortage and everybody talks about um, primary care shortage, but the shortage of subspecialty pediatrics in South Carolina and nationwide is significant and it has a lot of reasons so these guys are like gold and you Mm -hmm. want to try to put this gold arch wherever you can Mm -hmm. and so this rural health program along with telemedicine is allowing us to give the best care locally but subspecialty care locally and Mm -hmm. and 
and Dr. Schuller and, and, and Staples both have described how much of a difference it makes for those families with limited resources, travel. Right. Um, you know, if they're coming to Columbia in the Medicaid vans, transportation's an hour late, we may be shut down. Well, that They aren't going to need that to come to Sumter, to Orangeburg. Right. They probably can get there on their own, and that right. changes the game for that child right. in terms of outcomes. So I'm wondering about, you mentioned telehealth, telemodalities. Some people might say, well, why are you traveling to them? Why not just dial in? Why not just do a telehealth option? What's what's the advantage I'll let of the two guys who use it and explain why that doesn't always work in children, okay? <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny, you know, you hear people say occasionally, you know, what good has come out of COVID? Right. Um, if, you, if you point to telemedicine, we, we were kind of, everyone I think in the country was kind of messing with telemedicine before COVID, mm-hmm. but COVID forced us to use telemedicine. Um, one, to keep our ourselves safe and want to keep our patients safe mm-hmm. and we so we've expanded a little bit but you know for us we're more of our specialty in pediatric cardiology is based more on a lot on tests ekgs and echocardiograms and mm-hmm. we can't do that over a telephone or a video uh, conference so mm-hmm. we're somewhat bound by that as is pulmonology with their pulmonary function studies mm-hmm. um, but outside of that there's also um, it's very difficult with small children to do by by televideo they don't always cooperate when you're even in the room much less when you're 30 miles or 40 miles away Mm -hmm. um and the reality is there's still a a great degree of hands-on medicine that needs to be performed you Mm -hmm. you can only auscultate so well over a telephone line or a video line Mm -hmm. and um i know that i i have i struggle sometimes hearing heart sounds and murmurs very well over a telemedicine line i'm sure y'all do with lung sounds as well um but uh i think there is a there is a utility for it and we've really explored that since covid and are have have tried to maximize it the best we can um in creative ways benefit of the way we've utilized telemedicine is what Dr. Taylor was referring to where there may be one provider in the outreach clinic and one seeing patients by telemedicine in Columbia. And that really allows for you to maintain the therapeutic relationships you've built with your patients. Mm -hmm. So we take turns taking call in the hospital and um, seeing consults. And sometimes you have a complex hospitalization. You spend a lot of time talking with that family, building a rapport with them, Mm -hmm. but they live in an area where your partner goes to outreach clinic and you don't. So what we've started doing is um, letting our patients come to that outreach clinic when, Mm -hmm. let's say, my partner is there. They can get their pulmonary function testing, but then I see them over telemedicine for the visit. And they facilitate it in person. Yes. And that's nice because then you can have that continuity of care with the patient and they don't feel kind of jarred by, oh, are you sure this other provider knows my background? And yes, they do. But it matters that the patients feel that sense of security. Right. And you know, I would imagine we, you guys have all mentioned this. The patient satisfaction with this, I imagine, is very high. And I, you know, when you have children with chronic in- illnesses, I bet there's something valuable to seeing that provider in person, right? Better than through a screen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think too, there's that subtlety of pediatric medicine when you're trying to do in a developmental assessment of a child. And, and that is so hard to do over a telemedicine platform um, where you're doing these subtle testing or neurology differences. Well, these two specialties have, they've told you the difficulty they have in auscultation. Imagine when you're trying to assess a child's what we call tone, the resistance to movement, or assess their muscular strength. That's just impossible unless you lay hands on, and that's another reason often it's a follow-up visit. Um, You know, it works really well for those in terms of diabetic care and follow-up visits for neurology where you're adjusting medications and things like that. But as Dr. Staples said, you got to know what you're dealing with the first time to determine if you can let that child come back for telemedicine visit and or even a outreach clinic visit um so it's still that um not all patients even though they live local do we necessarily do that and and that's going back to what i was saying about our relationship with mcleod children's hospital Mm -hmm. us providing that subspecialty but these guys have to make that decision about no 
based on how this hospital course went or whatever, I probably need them to come to Columbia first, but I'll see them all the time now for follow-up if we can. Right. And so it, the rural clinics and the telemedicine is just allowing us to do what you alluded to, which is provide the care locally and take the strains and stresses off the families. Yeah. And that makes it better for everybody. But as you said, Dr. Bennett, you've got to have that therapeutic relationship and and we as human beings still like thank goodness human beings and the <laughs> the actual presence of those people right, not right machines yeah that, that's a those are great points we've kind of mentioned this already but you know the the impact of covid on this i'm sure it was not minor pulmonology cardiology obviously big things in uh, the covid disease but also you know all the restrictions and illness and things like that, I'm sure that impacted your delivery of care during that period. And even, I guess, we're at, what is this? We're September 2021, still kind of in the throes of it, right? So as Dr. Schuller said, I mean, within three or four days, we just had to change everything. Um, and so we, we met a lot. The leadership met continuously in our divisions and and so we had to transfer all these visits that we could to COVID, and we, we due to COVID, to um, telemedicine visits and only allow emergency visits to come in or urgent visits or visits we could not. We had we, we didn't have PPE. Um, you know, you couldn't find it. And so, as Dr. Schuler alluded to, protecting not only our patients but ourselves, mm-hmm. we had to come up with protocols. How, how do you not use a waiting room? I mean, you right. know, we, we don't have beepers for them to take to the cars. I mean, you know, there was a lot that we had to work out. And our team just did a phenomenal job over three or four days t- to get us there. And we still had some on-site visits. but And, and we've learned. We, we're, I mean, the Delta variant hit us harder than we got hit the first time. Right. No doubt about it. Especially among children. Oh, right. yeah. It, it, this, this compared to where we were, this is so much bigger tidal wave but um we adapted and we had to do a lot satellite clinics maybe couldn't be held or the rural health clinics had to be canceled for a while because we couldn't drive out there and have the ppe till we could get the ppe and how do you get those patients in and so logistically we were all just it, it it was a minute by minute idea by idea solution by solution team effort the other part of the problem with covid was that about half of our clinics we do in pediatricians offices we rent space from them and so we share office space with our pediatrician colleagues and um we had to figure out what they were going to do and some of their Mm -hmm. schedules they would be they would say we're going to see covid possible patients at this time so you can't do a clinic at this time so Mm -hmm. we had to move schedules around so we had to work in conjunction with our pediatric um, colleagues to figure out how to get the clinics done um, logistically as far as safe safe for the patient and safe for our providers. And another thing that when we first started doing our cardiology clinics, we had giant ultrasound machines we had to carry with us um, because they didn't make portable laptop versions back then. Right. So we we found a van. Um, uh, Hemonk had a van that we could use, so we took out a back seat and put our echo machine in the back of it and would go to clinic. And then we took that opportunity, since we're taking a van with us, let's take a medical student with us. So we started taking Mm -hmm. medical students. So now we get into COVID, and we're still taking medical students, and we're thinking, what's what's six feet distancing in a van? It just (laughs) doesn't happen. So for safety of the medical students and for our our staff and and faculty, we had to suspend taking medical students to our clinics with us. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different considerations. Now, once we all got vaccinated, we changed all that and made made changes in the way we did things. Mm -hmm. But it it made us think of a lot of different ways of doing things when we were faced with that. And again, if you if you look back at COVID, and what do we what is what is good about COVID? Though very little is, um, it really teaches us to think creatively and 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 learn how to not just sit in the the norm of what you do, but but think outside the box. 
So early in the pandemic, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, that is the um, group that puts out the recommendations for patients with cystic fibrosis, strongly encouraged that these patients not come into a healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that posed a huge challenge for us because we see these patients on a quarterly basis. um, And it's not just a check-in visit. We're doing checking weight, um, pulmonary function testing. Um, We're looking at whether they have any new bacteria they're growing in their lungs, so we're having to get samples. Uh, This became very challenging and a huge um, discussion point nationally among cystic fibrosis providers on how to best do this. Um, So we actually were brainstorming some options on how we could reach some of our patients um, because some of them were even struggling to um, do telehealth. So we were talking with the powers that be at Prisma and we were able to um, utilize their mobile health unit, which is basically a tricked out uh, fancy looking U-Haul almost that the inside looks like um, a patient room. Well, the challenge was these patients on a normal day cannot interact with each other because you do not want their bacteria to cross contaminate. So we utilized the space, but we actually went to these patients' homes, set up outside the mobile unit, utilized the electricity and Mm -hmm. the Wi-Fi and everything, set up um, usually in their driveway um, or in their yard, and we spent hours mapping out who needed to be seen. I had big maps of South Carolina on my desk, patients' addresses, and trying to figure out, yes, how long would it take to get here? Oh, this there's two siblings here. How long is that visit going to take? But we would set up our um, pulmonary function testing machine. We'd bring out the scale. Um, We had, at that point, um, access to PPE. And so because we were utilizing pulmonary function testing, that's an aerosol generating procedure. Um, So we were utilizing N95s and all of our gear. Um, But we were able to see probably a third of our patient, um, cystic fibrosis patient uh, group, Mm -hmm. over the course of two months. Um, I think we utilized the mobile unit five or six times. Hmm. Um, So it was really loved by the families. I've actually been contacted multiple Mm -hmm. times saying, are you going to do it again during flu (laughs) season? Um, yeah, I can understand that. So, but that was, we really hit a lot of the outlying areas, like sometimes, you know, an hour, hour and a half out from Columbia, mm-hmm. and we were getting some of these patients. That's great. Mm-hmm. One one thing I'm wondering about, you know, you said you hit about a third, you know, the past 18 months, how many people have kind of been left behind? Because even though you guys have bent over backwards to do everything you can, there's still gaps in care due to COVID, due to fears, due to, you know, you know, just everything. Have you seen that starting to trickle up your way yet? Of folks who delayed care for too long because they couldn't get it and now they're having problems or that kind of thing? We saw in quite a few um, asthmatics who were very nervous about coming into the clinic and so missed several follow-up appointments. Some of them didn't come into the clinic because they were nervous about coming into a healthcare setting. Others were quarantining so well that they weren't exposed to any triggers for their asthma so they were were doing doing well (laughs) yes but they went off all their medications and then when they came out of quarantine started having a lot of issues Um, so I've seen quite a few patients in that scenario interesting yeah we see some cardiology patients who've missed several visits and when they finally get them back in it's it's always COVID and concerns about COVID. Right. These are genuine concerns. The Absolutely. Family, I, don't, I don't think they're making excuses. They right. they really are quite fearful of coming into an office where potentially other people could have right. um, be carrying the virus. So, These are already medically fragile folks, exactly. so that's yep. very so understandable. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think two related phenomena related to COVID, but not necessarily impacting our rural health clinics, but did was that, as Dr. Staples alluded to, people didn't get seen. Maybe they didn't have their asthma attacks or whatever. But a lot of kids delayed being seen um, in some areas, so their complications were higher because they weren't being identified by primary care physicians because they weren't coming in. So their diabetes wasn't um, identified as early, or their cancers, or their GI problems. But two things that did result directly from COVID and I think are impacting our rural health clinic access and availability is the surge in mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes carries over to developmental issues. So the child has mental health issues 
and it looks like they're developmentally having issues when really more some mental health issue. Mm-hmm. So the services in both in neurology and in our developmental clinics have been really pushed to the brink. Mm-hmm. And I also think we have unfortunately seen a lot more child abuse mm-hmm. and neglect. Right. Um, because they weren't being identified in the schools. Mm-hmm. They weren't being identified by other people that are mandated reporters. Right. They weren't going to church. People were not being seen. And so um, I know in Children's Hospital, we have unfortunately had a lot more kids with suicide intent mm-hmm. and suicide um, attempts. Um, and the mental health issues and the child abuse and neglect issues have been overwhelming. Right. Um, on one day in our children's hospital, I think of the 40 kids, I was told 27 had mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not all, you know, they weren't in the hospital for those, but they had depression or anxiety or, and, and are worse, mm-hmm. um, other disorders. And so that, is challenged our rural health clinics because in terms of going out, those first-time patients can't necessarily be seen with related disorders. So there was a certain flood as we faced, as we alluded to with COVID, that we've never seen anything like it in our children's hospital. We have been eight to nine weeks now of no beds in our PICU with two or three every night in our PZD. So the acuity post-COVID has spread out to our rural health clinics as well. Right. Yeah, and it's an ongoing problem. Yes. How do you think that this whole COVID situation, which we're still in the middle of, how do you think that's going to change delivery, especially for you all going forward, good and bad? You know, one of the most noticeable things in clinic is we see a waiting room now as a detriment. Right. Um, and we still, every time we have a flare in the in, in, or a peak, we tend to shift our patients back to the parking lot, um, and mm-hmm. that's where our waiting room is. Um, with cell phones, it, it can be done. It's a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I'll ever look at a waiting room again the same. You know, you look out there, and you've got 10 or 15 patients packed into your waiting room thinking about what viruses <laughs> they could be passing each other. Right, right. And the normal normal. You know, times of rhinovirus and this and that, it's no big deal. But when you're talking about COVID and influenza, it can be a big deal. Right. Um, so I, I think that's changed how we think about handling patients in our clinic for sure. I think it's also, we've alluded to it, we've talked about how telemedicine, so we adopted that. So I think our willingness to adopt new technologies, thinking outside the box as Dr. Staples and they did to use the mobile health clinic to make sure those kids' needs were met. And that's just not something we would have ever jumped to, I don't think, if we were not there. But yet we know we can do it, know how to do it on a moment's notice right. um, if we know how to or need to do that. Um, I think it accelerated us um, looking at how we protect ourselves. I think maybe you know you're going in for a heart thing. You're not thinking that much about infectious disease. Sure, he washes his hands, but... We, we weren't thinking about that much as we are now and, and the screening that will probably continue regardless right. um, on patients. And I, I think it's going to um, continue to have its ripple effects depending on how things evolve and, and what availabilities of things that we can offer to the patient to provide care. Mm-hmm. But as we've all alluded to, in the end, we have to touch that child at some point we need to be in the room with them, but using our technologies, rural health clinics, to deliver care at the home and these new technologies of, you know, the things that both they do for sleep and pulmonary function and, and devices that can be used at home, I think, will right. um, accelerate mm-hmm. and allow them to download, as they do already, download data from home. You mentioned behavioral health as a growing concern. What else do you see as something that, is a issue or a something coming that you are thinking about that is going to affect your patient populations? I'm significantly concerned about these post-COVID syndromes that I'm seeing, and particularly teenagers, but older children mm-hmm. who have shortness of breath months after their mm. 
possibly almost asymptomatic COVID um, infection. Hmm. So I've had a rapid uptick in new patients who were sick with COVID and will describe a very mild course. Mm -hmm. And then for months after, they have shortness of breath. Some of them have chest pain. Mm -hmm. Um, The challenge is that we bring them in, we do pulmonary function testing, Sometimes it looks normal, but some of them are responding to asthma medications. And so we okay. have this whole new whole new right. area of post-COVID disease that, especially with this newest surge, I have seen even just in the last two weeks, hmm. maybe half a dozen hmm. of those kids. So it's a new, it's a new uh, issue that we're dealing with, and I have a feeling we're going to continue to see more of that right. um, for a while. Right, and that's a potential lifelong disabling condition of some sort, right? And we're just not sure. And right. that's what I've been telling pa- the parents and the patients is that we don't know a lot about what to expect from this. A lot of times I can give parents some anticipatory guidance on how right. long I think we might need to treat X, Y, or Z, and I tell them, I was like, we don't know yet what this is going to look like. We'll just continue to monitor it. And if we feel like they can come off the medications, we'll do that. When I was in medical school in Kaufman, remember this, there was this new disease called, what was it, human immunodeficiency virus. I forgot what they first called AIDS. Um, but um, that was when we were in medical school and and um, in residency. And um, now we've got this, you know, it's been 25, 30 years since then, and now we have this new disease that who'd ever thought at this point in my career they would find a new disease. And then after that disease, we end up with all these post-disease processes that or reactions that we had no idea were going to come until, you know, three or four weeks after our first COVID patients. We started seeing these unusual post-infectious processes. Mm -hmm. Um, It it is a little invigorating for your career to to have something new like that come along, but it's also a great deal of challenges right. and a great deal of unknown, as Heather was talking about. We don't know what to tell people long term if right. you have one of these reactions. Um, we we certainly do know that every every bit of data, and I'll throw this plug in there, every bit of data we see so far, it's a heck of a lot more complications from the disease than it is from the vaccine. Right. right. The vaccine we've seen rare mild reactions to vaccines mm-hmm. but some of these infections some of these acute cases of covid and in the then these post-infectious processes mm-hmm. we've seen some really sick kids and we're not sure how long they're going to last and you know to follow up with that it looks like coming soon we'll have vaccine approvals for five to eleven year olds um some of those myths out there myocarditis blood clotting you know, you have the floor. Please address those and educate us on why we shouldn't be concerned about that. Yeah, I should be able to do it with my eyes closed and half asleep because <laughs> I do it for every single patient that I see. But right. um, the, the summary of it is the complications from the vaccine are generally mild and extremely rare. Mm-hmm. And the complications from the disease are unusual, but are certainly a whole lot more common than we see with the with the uh, vaccine. So mm-hmm. I tell my patients, if you look at just the numbers, the statistics of what your chances are of getting a serious complication, take your risk with the vaccine, though it is very small, um, versus your risk with the disease, which is uh, more significant right. and um, more uh, certainly more unknown than, than what we uh, understand right now. And, you know, another pervasive myth out there, you know, how many patients have you seen in an inpatient setting or even in a physician setting that have a complication from the vaccine itself. That's I can missing. tell you that no child has been admitted to a South Carolina Children's Hospital for complication from the vaccine. Right. And I can tell you that every child that's been admitted to our Children's Hospital except one has been unvaccinated. Right. Which so seems pretty clear. If you're and, and that's the frustrating thing for me. Mm-hmm. Dr. Schuller has been a lot um, less <laughs> Kinder, or whatever. But the, 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 it's frustrating for me when I hear from some of the my colleagues that oh, this is a mild disease and you don't need to get it. Mm-hmm. Dr. Staples has alluded to the long-term complications that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Dr. Schuler sees heart things that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. I am walking the floors and seeing all these little two-month-olds, six-month-olds that are on ventilators. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing kids come in the hospital for five to seven days minimally and then have problems afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'm also seeing that kids are transmitting the disease to high-risk people, whether that's a child who has a complication or another one. Mm-hmm. And I just say, why? 
I mean, we vaccinate against measles, and it didn't back in the old days when it was rampant cause as much trouble as some of the as COVID has done. Mm-hmm. We give flu vaccine because we recognize it's a high risk disease to certain patient populations. Right. So to me, it's also a public health issue. Right. We vaccinate. I, I'd get, I'm going to get the pertussis, um, you know, the DPT thing because I'm getting ready to have my first grandchild. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get pertussis, <laughs> but I'm getting it to protect my grandchild. Right. And, and so I think there's also in peds, we've always been that way in pediatrics. So we don't know. Lungs are reshaping for so many life, you know, for the first times in their life, things are still growing compared to adults' hearts and things. Mm -hmm. But yet we know these kids end up in the hospital. Kids are in record numbers in the hospital compared to flu, no doubt about it. And whether the death rates more is going to be determined, we don't know. But why do we want kids to take a risk when there's a safe vaccine, allows everybody to go to school, I saw some data, 120,000 kids in South Carolina have been out of school because of quarantine or because of the disease. Right. That's not good for their mental health. Right. So there's all these replications. So, yeah, I'm excited and hope the 5 to 11 can soon get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I'm, but the concern I have is that if the parent doesn't get it, the child, the child probably doesn't. Isn't. Right. And until we can make that inroad and dispel all the myths you've alluded to and the mm-hmm. misinformation about vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know. Right. And, and it's, you know, I'm getting all these uh, emails and phone calls about alternative therapies. Mm-hmm. I go, the vaccine works. <laughs> Why do you want to give them a drug where it may not work or it could be harmful? And it can't be a preventive. You can't give everybody ivermectin for five months. Right. right. So anyway. I'll get off my soapbox. No, soapboxes yeah, are well. I deal with it. Very welcome. To as you. they do, and it's just it's frustrating. So the, the consensus in the room is that when the vaccine becomes available to 5 to 11-year-old, run, don't walk, and get your children vaccinated. Right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Luckily, I've, we've had some patients, at least I have had some, who are like 16, and the parents haven't been vaccinated, and the kid looks at me and goes, I got vaccinated, and I didn't even ask them. So. They're making those decisions on their own. Right, right. I don't think a 5- to 11-year-old is going to be able to do not, that. They don't but, have the capability. Uh, right. I am encouraged by some of our youth and some of their uh, opinions. But I will give you some personal experience that I've had as far as vaccine complications. We've had two patients in the Midlands since all this started that have had a very mild um, comp- cardiac complication from their vaccine that was some probably mild inflammation of the sac that surrounds their heart. We treated them both with ibuprofen on an outpatient basis. They did fantastic. We've had probably 40 patients with a condition called MIS-C, which is a post-infectious disease process that wreaks havoc on your heart. Mm -hmm. And without aggressive medical therapy, they would probably have long-term cardiac complications. Mm -hmm. But most of these kids are picked up, and we treat them with IV medications, steroids, all other types of drugs to try to decrease inflammation in their heart. And we'll probably get good results from that. But 40 versus 2 ibuprofen versus steroids and, and intravenous medications is hugely different. Right. So, yeah. yes, we, Makes a lot we, of sense. we encourage the vaccine. Great. I feel like there's been so much focus on the mortality uh, rate in children and not as much on the morbidity and mm-hmm. all of these things that occur to children yes maybe they don't die at the rate the adults do but are we okay with so many of our children having long-term cardiac or pulmonary damage right and that's one of my big concerns is we've we're not focusing on that that is such a significant burden to our children um, that i think we need to consider right i think you're 100 percent right and that message needs to keep getting out there and hopefully we'll Turn the corner here soon. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all tired of this nonsense, I think. So on a happier note, everybody loves a good success story. Tell me some of your great success stories as a result of going out and serving patients in place. I can give you some statistics that are kind of a success story. Um, when I was preparing for this, I went back and looked at some of our data that you and I share in the past on, mm-hmm. these, um, on our outreach program. And last year, the academic year, we saw 3,200 patients in these outreach clinics about. And if you look at about an average of about 80 miles of travel for each one of those patients back and forth from their location to Columbia, 
it adds up to 256,000 miles of saved mileage that we've been able to uh, accomplish with these clinics. And I thought about that number. I said, that sounds like a lot, but I, it's kind of hard to conceptualize how far that is. And uh, so I looked it up, and it's 10 times around the circumference of the Earth um, or wow. one drive from here to the moon. Wow. Yeah, it's a, a lot, lot of, of miles. Yeah. And, you know, that makes a big difference as far as yeah. money and costs and all this kind of stuff. But then I started thinking about the larger picture of of the effect on our environment and how much um, – carbon exposure and, and uh, greenhouse gases All we've saved. Of text, right. That's one year I'm talking about of 256,000 right. miles. We've been doing this for 25 years. So right. if we looked at all the years, I'd love to know what tonnage of carbon emissions we have saved by doing these outreach clinics. Mm-hmm. Which um, is a positive impact on childhood asthma, right? Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> It's all it, coming together. That's a, that's, a, that's a global, a more global program success story. Right. If you want to look at individuals, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you a specific person, but I cannot tell you how many times we have had patients come up to us or families come up to us, mainly mothers and, and fathers, telling us how much they appreciate coming to their community. Right. And I think it's more than just not having to travel. It's it, it makes them feel important. It makes mm-hmm. them feel like they where they are and, and sometimes in the offices that we do the clinic in it makes them um, feel like um, that we're doing something special for their kids and that and there's something about traveling to go see someone's child that makes that parent even more appreciative that you've gone to the effort to do something right. for their child versus right. just I'm not going to say just sitting in your office in Columbia because we don't do that but right. but it, it it means a lot to them and they right. tell us that repeatedly and I'm sure Heather has stories of that as well yeah I've seen one of the biggest benefits are our cystic fibrosis patients who I've mentioned before we see every three months and the data shows that if they are seen um, consistently in a certified center that their outcomes are better and I can think of three specific patients who were seen maybe once a year Mm -hmm. until we started going to an outreach clinic near their home and now they're being seen very close to the quarterly timeline. That's great. Um, and that's that's huge because we know what the data says and the data says your outcomes are better. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we have really done right by those patients by mm-hmm. being available in their area. Um, even if they may not realize the medical impact, I know socially, like Dr. Schuler was saying, mm-hmm. they appreciate us being in their community. Yeah, that supportive aspect of it all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and it's really hard to argue against serving care to medically fragile children that's that's a population that everybody should be behind to support i think in some way shape or form so and you know our center of rural primary health care we're very pleased to support this and you know you know dr taylor mentioned that earlier and i'm a bad director for not mentioning it first so we've been supporting this for many years and yes you have and we'll continue to do so and then in the foreseeable future as well because this it's been a great program and it's done a great tremendous amount of work well, we want to publicly thank you for that support because I would tell you right now we wouldn't be doing nine subspecialties and we wouldn't be in seven different cities. We could not – the cost would not allow us to do that, even trying to serve the children as best we could. Right. And so that – your center and the support that we get is just phenomenal and, and it's having a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. The kids that Dr. Staples talked about will live longer because of that. Yeah. Nobody will ever know it was because we did a rural health clinic. They'll never, right. ever, yeah. ever know that. Right. And those are the silent success stories that occur. And Dr. Schuler alerted to about 40. We're over 50-some just in the Midlands now with MISC. Right. And those kids, if couldn't be followed up appropriately and and everything is just phenomenal and and i do think it sends strong messages so we're very thankful for the support and uh, we hope y'all take great pride in what we're doing and that you know that you're a big part of that success yeah this is one of the success stories we always raise and especially in front of the legislature so (laughs) thanks to the legislature for supporting this as well (laughs) exactly I give you a good story, Kevin. It's it's not necessarily uh, dependent upon outreach, but it, it relates to our outreach clinic. I, mm-hmm. We were doing an outreach clinic in Orangeburg probably about 15 years ago, 
and I'm from Orangeburg. I grew up there, so I speak Orangeburg, so I, I can understand people down there, and I, I know how they think and how they talk. So a little girl was having an ultrasound done of her heart, and she looked at mom, and she goes, where's the lard? And I thought, oh, gosh, she thinks she's got lard in her heart. And so I, I went into this long explanation about how, you know, you, you can develop plaques in your heart relatively early, but you're young, and you probably don't have that. We can't really see that in ultrasound. And finally, Mom stopped me, and she goes, she's saying, Lord. Uh, I said, uh, ma'am, I said, I'm not. I'm going to let you handle this about um, how you can see the Lord in your heart on the ultrasound. But um, I, uh, I should have picked up on that. I should have spoken better Orangeburg, <laughs> but um, I was more concerned about the science of it. So that's, that, that's my favorite outreach story, though. It, uh, it probably could happen in anywhere, even Columbia. But she right. did have an Orangeburg accent, so that probably does relate to our outreach. Right. Clinic. So you get a pass for that one. That's yes, good. exactly. <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation. I do want to wrap up with a couple questions I ask all of my guests. You know, we when we talk about rural and rural healthcare, especially, we tend to focus on some of the shortcomings, the barriers, all those kinds of things. But I want to know, especially those of you that go out into rural, what are some of the good things you see out in rural South Carolina? I love the camaraderie that I see in the communities, especially Mm -hmm. the community pediatricians offices that we um, are lucky to share space with. Um, It's such a supportive environment um, and so I always appreciate going out to those areas for that reason yeah that's good Ozzy anything I have a couple of, uh, of examples um, one is when we take our medical students and residents sometimes this is the only time they've ever seen these communities mm-hmm. um, so I, I can remember vividly taking someone and um, to Sumter with us and uh, it was a medical it was a resident who was not from South Carolina never been to Sumter um, and um, I remember the the comment was this is this is a really nice place. She goes, I really need to get out more and see more of South Carolina. I said, yeah, this is what rural right. South Carolina is about. Right. Um, you know, everywhere you go, you're going to find good people and bad people, but um, you can find some really, really good people from rural parts of the state. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, the appreciation you see from these people um, is, is what's really special. Right. Um, they, they, they express that, I think, a whole lot better than – the people from the big city do maybe um, right. they really appreciate you being there and, and and they feel special because you've come to see them one final question for you all and i've asked this of everybody is how residents from out of state from new york city how would you define rural how would you describe what rural is to them well, I grew up in a small town in Dillon County called Lakeview, South Carolina, and we had 800 population. The population of the little town was 800. Had a flashing light, mm-hmm. and um, but everywhere else, if you went 250 yards from that flashing light, you started running into farmland or you started running into pasture land, and, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it's not that way anymore, but. I would define rural, I know they have federal definitions, but I think you have to look at what is available in terms of services and Mm -hmm. what is available to the communities as a whole. Mm -hmm. How far do they have to travel for things that we all take for granted? And so that's why I think most of South Carolina is rural still because of the distance. We're all concentrated in a few we call ourselves big cities, and we're little. Right. Um, and uh, but if you get outside of that, in McCormick County and Bamberg County, Orangeburg, Dillon, you know, or Reed County used to be that way, but it's not anymore. And right. if you, you know, get up towards Oconee and Cherokee and Gaffney, and I mean, we could just Chester, Lancaster, I mean Chesterfield. Those are rural. Right. And. Um, so I would define as by how far you have to travel for the basic services that we all take for granted. Mm-hmm. What you described, Kaufman, is, and you didn't use the word, but I'll use the word, is just access. Mm-hmm. Access, and we think about it in medicine as access to health care and access to physicians and, and, and medicine. But that can be access to fresh foods, to a grocery store, mm-hmm. access to a bank, um, access to all types of different things. So um, – that access can you can have pockets of rural in the middle of a big city. I know there's parts of Columbia where there's not a grocery store within walking distance, of, right. and and that's you either going to walk or you're not going to get groceries. Right. So I think we can have pockets of rural um, 
right in the middle of our cities, but it's all about access and what you, what's available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can work on the our this this project that we do is is working on providing medical care, subspecialty pediatric care specifically. But it, that that's about the access. But that's something we can control. But the other stuff is for above my pay grade, I guess you would say. <laughs> I hear you. Dr. Staples, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would say that I completely agree with their comment about access. And when I came here as a resident, I grew up in a suburb of Jacksonville in Florida. So there were some rural areas around me, but that's not where I grew up. Um, but both my parents grew up in very, very rural areas in Indiana and Pennsylvania, and so I'd seen um, what that meant. And so it, that was really what stood out to me when I came here, and I actually went with the cardiology team as a resident to outreach clinics and realized the reality of the lack of access right. in a lot of the areas right. of the state. So thank you all for this. This has been a great conversation. I think we learned a lot and uh, learned the importance of what you do. And again, thank you all for doing this work as a person who doesn't deliver care this is incredibly good care and i'm so very pleased that we're able to help you guys do this in some small way so thank you all for coming thank you for having us yes thank you absolutely so uh for more information about what you've heard today or our guests or the programs look check out the show notes for today's episode uh stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon and if you liked what you heard please head over to itunes and give us a five-star rating nothing below that will count if you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on our program please let us know we'd love to hear from you and that's all for today thanks for listening to the growing rural podcast if you found the content valuable please leave a rating on itunes or wherever you listen so that others can find us For more information, please visit our website at scruralhealth.org or find us on Twitter at SC underscore CRPH. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Y'all take care.